morning. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, this has been a, a little bit of a crazy morning, and I want to give a shout out to Laura Cook. You've been a rock star this morning, <laughs> trying to figure out all the technical issues that we've been having. And so hopefully it looks like the, uh, the Facebook Live feed is going now through the phone, and hopefully they can hear me. If not, I apologize, but you can't hear me apologize, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> Open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17 is where we're going to be camping out today. And we are continuing to journey with the Israelites. They've been freed from slavery in Egypt. And we come to a third trial or a third test. That the Lord has put in front of them. Uh, we've seen this pattern developing. God tests the Israelites. They fail miserably. Moses intercedes on their behalf. And then God very mercifully saves the day. And remember the purpose of this test. These tests. Are, it's not just like simply some pass fail kind of thing. In fact thank goodness. That God's love does not depend on whether or not we pass the test. Uh, thank goodness for the Israelites' sake, because they're failing the test. And uh, in fact, we know that we, we all fail the test. Uh, in fact, the only one that has not failed the test is Jesus Christ. But thank goodness that if we are in Christ, we get his score. It's kind of like a, a golf scramble. Gene may be the only one that understands this illustration. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else plays golf out there. But uh, if you've ever been part of or seen a, a golf scramble, you usually play in a group of four. And the, the cool thing about a golf scramble is you don't have to be very good as long as you've got somebody on your team that is, that is an ace because it's only the best ball that gets scored, right? And so you can have two, three people on your, on your team that are terrible, but if you've got one ace then you've got a chance of winning, right? Well, the good news is if you're in Christ, you are on Jesus's team and he never misses. In fact, he hits a hole in one every single time. It doesn't matter if it's par seven. He's going to hit a hole in one every single time. It doesn't matter. And so if you're like me and you get up the fairway, it doesn't matter how hard I try. I never hit the fairway off the tee. It doesn't matter because I'm on team Jesus and I get his score. So, today's passage is going to be a reminder of this, I hope. As we once again look at this pattern of the Israelites failing the test, Moses interceding, and God mercifully rescuing them. And so let's pray and then we're going to dive in. Father, you are all we need. I'm thankful that you have given us more grace and mercy than we can even imagine. And I pray right now we would just get a taste of that. I pray right now that you would strengthen our faith so that when we are tested, like this morning, and, and way worse ways than we were tested this morning, that we, we know that we are going to go through trials. And I pray that in the midst of those we would run to you. We would run to you, Lord. Holy Spirit, would you remind us, once again, through your word, 
how radical and how inconceivable your love is for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, pick up in chapter 17. We're just going through the first seven verses. So all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandments of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out, up, out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So the Israelites are inching their way towards Mount Sinai where they're going to receive the Ten Commandments and they have camped once again in an area where there's no water available to drink. And I think it's significant that this is a very similar test to their first one. They camped in a place where there was no water. They grumbled. The, the only water that was there originally was this bitter water. And what does God do? He turns the bitter water sweet. And so this is very similar to that. And yet here again, the Israelites, like us, are very slow to trust, slow to learn. Notice also in verse 1 that the Israelites have traveled to this location, not on accident, but they're following the commandment of the Lord, the text says. And I think this teaches us a really important lesson. It teaches us not to believe the lie that if you are obedient to the Lord, that life's going to be easy. Sometimes following God will lead you into trials so that God can teach us to trust him even more. So God's led the Israelites into this place for a reason, for a purpose. If you're going through a trial, there's a reason for it. There's a purpose for it. This is not by accident. In this situation, God is testing, lovingly testing them. And the results have become all too predictable for the Israelites, right? Look at verse 2. The people immediately start quarreling with Moses. And the word used for quarreling here, it's a legal term. It's almost like What's going on here is the Israelites are hauling Moses into the court and accusing him of a crime. What's their crime? Attempted murder. Have you brought us out here to kill us and our livestock and our children? Have you brought us out here to kill us from thirst? And so when Moses cries out to God and says, I think they're about to stone me, I don't think he's being dramatical here. I don't think he's exaggerating. I think he feared for his life. And so Moses responds to the they're quarreling like he has been doing. Uh, he intercedes for them. But before he does that, he says something really significant. He says, why do you test the Lord? And, and 
you look at that and, and I wonder, okay, what does he mean by that? How are they testing the Lord? Well, you get a little bit of an answer to that at the very end of the, the section in, in verse 7. And, and we read here that, and he called the name of the place Massa and Merah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And so the way that they were testing the Lord was just simply asking the question. Not, I think they knew that God was with them, but what they really wondered was, does God care? I think we ask that same question often. We may believe that God is here and he's with us, but we ask the question, okay, in light of the situation we're going through, does God really care? I think it's also significant here in verse 7 that Moses names this place Massa and Meribah. The, the name Massa means test. The name Meribah means quarrel. Why would Moses do that? Why would Moses name this place such an unusual name? Well, we often name things to remember something. And I think that's what Moses is doing here. He, he names this place to be a reminder to the future generations. Hey, don't be like these cantankerous fools who have the audacity to test the Lord, to question the Lord. Now, ironically, Moses doesn't even learn his own lesson, though. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but I'm in Numbers chapter 20, I'm going to kind of summarize what's going to go, what happens in Numbers chapter 20. You can go there if you want to see what I'm talking about. But in Numbers chapter 20, the Israelites are about to start their final leg of their journey in the wilderness. Okay, They've been journeying for almost 40 years at this point, and they're in not the wilderness of sin like they had been here, but they're in the wilderness of Zin, Z-I-N, and they come to this place that doesn't have water. And God names this place uh, Meribah because, once again, there's no water, and what do the Israelites do? Predictably, they start quarreling with Moses. Why did you bring us out here to kill us? That's become their like constant chorus that... They keep repeating over and over while they're in the wilderness. And after almost 40 years, Moses is a little tired of this, right? He's a little frustrated. And also, if you look at Numbers chapter 20, at the very beginning of the chapter, his sister dies at the very beginning of that chapter. And it, there's just like one line about that. But I can imagine if you're Moses, your sister has just died, emotionally you're a wreck, and here are the Israelites complaining again. And so Moses responds to their quarreling, again, like he typically does. He intercedes on their behalf, and God gives Moses specific directions. In fact, they're very similar directions to what he did uh, in, in, in our story today. He, he says that, look, I'm going to have water come out of a rock. But he says, this time, instead of striking the rock, I want you to speak to the rock. Well, Moses, in his frustration doesn't follow the directions. Uh, instead of speaking to the rock, he gathers the Israelites together and he yells at them out of anger. And he says, Hear now, you rebels. Okay, that's what he calls them. He, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And notice how the language there. He says, notice, he, he, who's he giving credit to? He's getting, giving credit to himself and Aaron. He says, should, should we do this for you? And then in a public display of rebellion, he doesn't speak to the rock, he hits it. Not just once, but twice, just to make sure everybody knows that he's not happy. And so God looks at this situation, 
And he ends up pulling Moses and Aaron aside and tells them that, look, you're not going to see the promised land. And Moses would see the promised land from a distance, but he, he wouldn't be able to enter into the promised land. I mean, can you imagine? This is what Moses has been working for for the last 40 years almost. And here we have neither Moses nor Aaron nor uh, so that's Moses' brother, Aaron, or Moses' sister are going to go into the promised land. And I think it's an important reminder for us that our righteousness never earns the promised land for us. I mean, if anybody was righteous enough to get into the promised land, you'd think it would be Moses, but not even Moses is good enough. Ironically, even Moses needed somebody to intercede on his behalf. Even Moses falls short and needs somebody to bridge the gap. So for the last 40 years, Moses has been interceding on the behalf of the Israelites. And yet, here in Numbers 20, as they're about to finish up their wilderness wanderings, it's revealed that Moses isn't going to be the one to bring God's people into the promised land. Moses was a savior, but he wasn't the savior. Even Moses needed a savior. He needed Jesus. Moses was a foreshadowing of someone greater. And of course, it's hugely significant that the responsibility of taking God's people into the promised land was given then to a man named Joseph, or in Aramaic, Yeshua. And in Greek, we say Jesus. And so many scholars actually believe that the reason that Moses was not permitted into the promised land wasn't just simply because he had this public display of rebellion. But it was also because the rock that he struck was meant to symbolize something greater than a rock. Of course, it symbolized God's gracious provision and his mercy. But if you go to 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes this. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, the same cloud. Okay? They were all, they all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate of the same spiritual food. Talking about the manna. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Think about how Jesus referred to himself in the Gospel of John. John chapter 4. He's talking to the woman at the well, right? And he says to her that, look... Everyone drink, that drinks of this water, talking about the water in the well, will thirst again. Well, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him, them, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Two chapters later, in John chapter 6, this is right after he gives himself the title of the bread of life. He then says, whoever comes to me shall never not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Next chapter, John 7. We read this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anybody thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, who, whom those who believe in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so John 7 is really significant because this is Jesus in a very public way declaring that the scriptures in the Old Testament were 
foretelling about him and that he was really the fulfillment of verses like Isaiah 44, 3, where God says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, and I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And so this theme of living water, it, it, it's like a stream that runs throughout the whole scripture. And you've heard me talk about the Bible Project before. Well, they've got these theme videos that are really, really good because they help tie the whole Bible together. And there's this theme video we're going to try to play right now that uh, it's about this living water, this water of life that runs through the whole Bible. The whole Bible. And I, and I couldn't talk about this as well as this video explains it. it. So check it out. See why it's one of the most deadly, uninhabitable places on the planet. It's dry, and where there's no water, there's no life. This is the picture that we get on page two of Genesis. The story begins with a dry and desolate wilderness, but God provides a spring in the desert that becomes a source of life for plants and animals. And that's where God brings together a man and a woman so that humanity can flourish and spread the life of the garden. Exactly. And that garden spring becomes a river that flows out to water the entire world. And there can be enough for everyone. It's all a gift from God. And this is great, humans in a lush garden, but as it turns out, they find a way to ruin it. Right, despite all of this water that God's provided, it's like they still have a drought deep inside of them. This is an image of the human condition, how we're always thirsty for more. But more of what? Well, in this story, the humans want more wisdom to create more security and more control on their own terms. And tragically, it only leaves them more thirsty and suspicious of each other, and so they end up back in the wilderness. The humans have lost access to the water of life. And because of that, they can't spread God's life into the world. And so God needs to rescue them from the wilderness. Yeah, like in the story of Jacob. His selfish scheming ruined his family relationships, so he has to run from his problems out into the wilderness. But there, he finds a well, and he meets a woman. And this is like Eden, a man and a woman together by a source of water. Right. And then through Jacob, God creates the family of Israel, and he invites them to share in his own life so that they can be his partners in spreading that life to others. And sometimes they do this. But ultimately, they struggle with the same drought of the soul, thirsting for more power, more control, and it leads them down a path of violence and self-ruin. And so they find themselves in a new wilderness, captive to other nations. All this effort to quench our own thirst on our own terms, it's killing us. Yeah, the biblical prophet Ezekiel described Israel in exile as a pile of dry bones scattered in a desert valley. But, he said, one day God will pour out his own life presence, his spirit, to water the land, to create a new Eden and new kinds of humans. People who can spread God's life to others. Exactly. And so this brings us to the story of Jesus. Right. And there's a story about Jesus who goes to a well that Jacob used to own. And just like in Jacob's story, Jesus meets a woman. And he tells this woman that no matter how much water she drinks from this well, she'll always thirst for more. Then he offers water that could quench her thirst forever. He's not talking about the well water. No. What he's talking about is God's own life that comes through him to us to satisfy our deepest thirsts. This is why later on Jesus says, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. This is cool. But it's also a strange image, drinking from a person. Totally. 
and it's connected to another strange image we find in the story of Jesus' death on the cross. A Roman soldier thrusts a spear in Jesus' side, and there's blood. But also, all this water flows out. Yes, it's an image showing how Jesus' death is the fountain of life. From him, God's own love that would die for his enemies flows down and out into the world. After Jesus was raised from the dead, we're told that he sends the Spirit into his followers. Yes, to fill them up with God's own life. This is why the Apostle Paul said that when we join the current of God's Spirit, the fruit of Eden starts growing in us. Love and joy, patience and kindness, gentleness and self-control. People like that can create beautiful things in the world that bring life to others. Yes, like little streams of God's life that can come together and point forward to the beautiful scene that we find on the last page of the Bible. There's a new river of life. Yes, it's flowing out from God and into a renewed creation, bringing life to all wherever it goes. I love those videos. They, they do such a good job of showing us how everything just connects. And, and my hope is as we've been walking through Exodus, I, maybe you've noticed I've been talking more about Jesus than about Exodus, typically. But if you remember, Jesus said that all of the Old Testament was ultimately about him. And so I think that the, what we're seeing in these, the, the river of life and the, the, the water that, that really represents our, the mercy of God, we, this is the lesson that we see from this passage. God's mercy triumphs over our mutiny. Let me say that again. God's mercy triumphs over our mutiny. So the tragedy of the fallen human condition is that we have all, like the Israelites, failed the test, grumbled at God and accused God of not having our best interests in mind. We've all tested the Lord and asked the question, is the Lord among us or not? Does God even really care? We've all, like Moses, rebelled and symbolically struck the rock of Christ in anger because things have not gone our way. We have all failed the test and fallen short of the glory of God. And when a group of people rise up in rebellion to overthrow a king, what do we call that? We call that a mutiny. And for honest, all of us have taken part in an attempted coup, an attempted mutiny. We, we've all believed in, at some level that we know better than God. And yet, our rebellion, our Attempted mutiny is met with mercy, and grace, and forgiveness, and love. This is the good news. I mean, really, it's the best news. It's that if we are in Christ, his mercy is more. I love when we sing that. In Christ his our sins they are many but his mercy is more the good news and we're going to take a look at romans 5 8 through 11 we read this but god shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners christ died for us thank goodness it doesn't say that god shows us his love when we get our act together no while we were still rebellious sinners bent on mutiny Christ sacrifices himself, bled 
for us paying the penalty that we rightly deserve. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more, notice how many times we see the word more in this passage, shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Again, thank goodness it doesn't say, therefore we have now been justified by our good works. No, we've been justified by his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. And what is more is it's because of this that we are saved from the wrath of God. The wrath of God that we deserve. Verse 10, he goes on, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. In other words, as great as Christ's death was for us on the cross, it's even better that he didn't stay dead. He was resurrected, which gives us hope that one, way, one day we will be also resurrected. Verse 11, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation notice it's past tense it's already a reality it's already been declared this means it's not something that we earn it's something that was been has been given to us at the end of his book unoffendable uh, listen to this book uh, this week uh, Brant Henson is the author he shares the story about getting kind of guilted into coaching his son's peewee football, flag football team. And I connected with the story right away because I can remember several years ago where I was uh, guilted into coaching my daughter, Hannah's soccer team for a couple of years. We never won a game. Had, I've never played soccer. Had no idea what I was doing. Uh, well, Brent's experience was very similar. In fact, not only did they not, not win a game, they, they didn't even score a point until, uh, until the last game. Week after week, they would be pummeled by these other teams that had these seasoned coaches, these fancy uniforms. The, the low point actually came, he, he shares, when his team was penalized because of their uniform. Evidently, he didn't realize that uh, in flag football, you weren't allowed to have shorts with pockets. And so in, <laughs> in humiliation, he sends his team into the crowd to plead with people to exchange their shorts so that they could play. <laughs> so the last game of the season, they're playing uh, the best team in the league, of course. Uh, the, the team that they're playing, is, they've got like a whole team of coaches and coordinators. They've got, of course, the fancy uniforms. They've got sponsorships. The team that they're playing is 11-0. His team, of course, is 0-11. And, and uh, I mean, there's no way that they're going to win this game, right? Well, the amazing happens. And on the very first play of the game, Brent's... Uh, best player gets the gets the kick, uh, receives the kickoff, and runs it into the end zone. Gets a touchdown. First touchdown of the year for their team. Their team's going bananas. The, the crowd is gasping. The other team is fuming and uh, feeling like he's David slaying Goliath. He says, let's go for the two-point conversion. <laughs> so, so they try the two-point conversion. They don't get the two-point conversion. And in fact, the other team ends up scoring 77 unanswered points and so the final score was 77 to 6. Now fortunately that was not the end of the story and so after they shake hands and they're walking off the field this white limo this stretch limo pulls up and one of the moms from his team gets out and says come on in we're going for the end of the season pool and pizza party and so these kids who haven't won a game all season who had just been humiliated again 
are like high-fiving each other. They're ecstatic. They pile in because they had just gone from being humiliated losers to royalty. Is that not an awesome picture of the kingdom of God? They became royalty, not because of anything that was in them, but because totally because of grace. Yes, we were failures. We were rebels. We were enemies. And yet now, if we're in Christ, God looks at us as his children. In Christ, we are his bride. In Christ, we are his treasured possession, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. In Christ, we are his people. In Christ, we are the sheep of his pasture. We stand justified, forgiven, never to be condemned. We are brothers and sisters. And this is why we sing, right? This is why we sing the mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend. The agonies of Calvary, you, the perfect Holy One, crushed your son, drank the bitter cup reserved for me. Your blood was washed away, has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. By your perfect sacrifice, I've been brought near your enemy. You've made your friend, pouring out the riches of your glorious grace. Your mercy and your kindness knows no end. That's our Jesus. Let's pray. Father, oh, what a sweet reminder of how your mercy is more. Yes, our sins and our failures are many, but your mercy is more. I thank you for that. And I pray today we would be reminded deep down in our soul of that truth. And we would leave here excited to tell the world about it. For your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we enter into a, a time of communion, this is an opportunity for us again to be reminded of his mercy and his grace.